0: I want to start today <laughs> with a caveat just to make sure that we all get what I'm saying here there's nothing that I'm gonna be talking about today that I am not or have not been guilty of so if you feel like I am preaching at you Understand, I'm just preaching at the mirror, and you happen to be getting in the way. At the same time, I am doing my best, as I know some of you are, to not be exasperated with the world that we live in at times. I... I told Shelly just last night I thought I'd take a, a minute and breathe and turn on the television. And The menu comes up with, with TV shows and movies. I won't mention which app, because I don't want to single anybody out. They're all the same. Title after title after title. Either involving foul language in the title itself, or celebrating evil and I just had to turn it off because I was so frustrated. <laughs> My mind is immediately gone, going to what I, I think I could call a prayer, but I, I may be more inclined to just call it a, a gripe. If I want to make it spiritual, I can call it a lament, but it's really just, Lord, take me home now I'm so done with this we live in a foul world and I get fed up with it anybody else get fed up with it I have a hard time I have a hard time sometimes thinking about the fact I just had a friend in California post this on Facebook. Uh, his young daughter is uh, growing up, and they were talking about whether they might have another baby. And It's like, I can't imagine bringing a child up in this world. I get that. Most, most of my kids are grown, and one is nearly grown. It's crazy. My grandkids are coming up. Your kids, I'm dealing with them all week in vacation Bible school, and I see such innocence and hope and beauty. You see that in the eyes of a child, that that hope. You know, just I'm reminded that every time God in His grace allows someone to conceive a child, whether planned or unplanned, The conception of that child, the crafting of that baby by the hand of God is a sign that he is not done yet. And there's work for us to do. But man, it can get frustrating, amen? And yet, as I read this passage and its very specific admonitions, exhortations, and warnings, Paul's not talking to the world. He's not talking to all of the foulness in Hollywood or my godless employer or my heathen family members. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. He's talking to me. Paul <laughs> is not concerning himself here. With all the stuff going on out there with the thems. What they're doing. And if God could just deal with them, it would be so much better. He's not dealing with the cultural issues of a society that was once wholesome. And no longer is wholesome. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure that that's our experience either, if we're honest. He's talking to those who claim to belong to God. Our core reality for today as we look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 through 7. Is simply this. A child of God cannot embrace a life of impurity. A child of God cannot embrace a life of impurity. I, I played with that For quite a while trying to figure out a clever way to say something positive. So that I don't have to to express this from the negative position. And yet I think to do so misses what Paul is saying here. He is saying very specifically, stating it in the negative, that a child of God cannot embrace a life of impurity. I cannot reflect God's character while embracing that which distorts God's character. Whether I'm a child of God or a child of wrath is reflected in the walk I embrace. In chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, Paul says that all of us were, before we were in Christ, all of us in the church were among the pagans among the heathens, following the way of this world, under the control of the prince of this world. Everybody, no one is clean. He said that by nature, each one of us, even that nice old lady that lives next door, even that sweet, seemingly innocent child who hasn't figured out how to sin as completely and as well as you and I have, All of us, by nature, children of wrath, until he reaches in and pulls us out of that and allows us and causes us to see the reality that is Jesus Christ, the grace of God in flesh, taking on my sin and yours to pay the full penalty to bring us from death to life. And those whose eyes have been opened see and receive that truth by faith. But until such time, every single one of us are children of wrath. Once we receive him, then God has adopted us as his children, and we have the same exactly the same standing before God as Jesus Christ himself, that ought to blow your mind. If it doesn't blow your mind, then you have not thought it through. When God looks at you, if you are in Christ, all he sees is Christ. And yet, in this foul world, we are called to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. How in the world are we going to do that? If I belong to God because I have received Christ, if I'm on his team, if I'm in his family, then my life, my lifestyle, the choices that I make, the things I do in and with my body, the things that come out of my mouth, the things that I let stick around in my mind, they belong to God. How in the world am I supposed to live clean while I'm swimming in a cesspool? Well... If we're going to learn how to walk rightly in the midst of the foulness, we need to back up. Before we can understand what Paul is saying in this passage, we need to understand what Paul is saying in this letter. And before we can understand what Paul is saying in this letter, we need to understand how this fits in the big picture of what God is doing. So we we need to start by understanding context. Before we get into the text itself, we need to understand context. The context. First, let's start with the story of humanity. God has kind of drawn together for us, maybe in your mind it will help you to picture it like funnels, right? There's this this big picture and God kind of funnels it down for us. And there are are four major themes or or, uh, acts, if you will, in the story of humanity in this cosmic drama that is being played out. Those four things, if you want to jot them down, are creation, fall, redemption, and you can refer to it either as consummation or restoration, depending on how you want to look at that. Some theologians call it different things. But the consummation and restoration is the final stage. First, we begin in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and He Created all things in perfection. And he created humanity, specifically unique from the rest of creation, to bear his image. Understand that unlike what the Eastern religions and other pantheistic religions teach, God is not in everything. You don't look around and, and see God in the chair and in you know, creation, God is outside of creation. He stands apart. He is holy. And creation proceeds from God and borrows all of the glory that you see from Him. It derives its glory from the one who is glory. When you see the beauty of a sunset, that is a reflected, derivative glory to give you a glimpse of Of part of who God is. And we see his beauty in the creation. We see his majesty. We see the masterful complexity of vast galaxies and solar systems. And down to the smallest subatomic particle. We see ordered creation. God involved himself in every part. And yet. He created one being, one species, specifically to carry his image in themselves. We were created in this perfect environment for God, for his pleasure, for his glory. For a perfect, intimate, undisturbed, uninterrupted, unguarded relationship with Him so that our existence at the dawn of creation and the purpose and intent for every human being ever is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To be in this perfect intimacy And God, in wanting to illustrate that to us, gave us family. And God himself designed and created marriage, sexuality, and family for the express purpose of carrying out this glorifying in the propagation of the race, In the dominance, the dominion over the earth that we might serve as its caretakers. And in the beauty of the relationships in marriage and parenting that reflect who he is and illustrate his relationship to his people. The problem here is that after this perfection was created, we bought the lie that it wasn't good enough. And so the devil came in and twisted God's words and diminished in the minds of humanity what God had already done and created. And while we alone were created to be like God and bearing his image, we sought then to strive to be like God, equal in power and authority. As if God's plan could not possibly be as good as our plan. We thought that by doing what we thought was right, we could put ourselves on equal standing with the righteous one. That was the fall. So God created in perfection. Humanity fell, was corrupted by sin, cursed because of sin. The judgment of God poured out on all of creation because of our rebellion. And all of us inherit that from our forefather Adam. No one is clean. That's why babies don't have to be taught to do wrong. They have to be taught to do right. (laughs) Babies are born selfish, right? The only thing that matters is me. They don't even have object permanence yet when they realize that the entire universe revolves around me. Feed me. Change me. It's all about me and they have to learn that the universe does not revolve around them. Say amen if you're still learning that today. God's teaching me that lesson every day. The universe does not revolve around me. Creation was perfect for the fall for all of us, for the entire race separated us from God, from the giver of life and therefore our natural state the wages of our sin is death the third aspect of the story of humanity is redemption god in his grace reached down and called out for himself a people this is all still in genesis the the first two chapters are the creation Chapter 3 gives us the fall and we see the repercussions of that throughout the rest. And as we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, we see God speaking to this pagan Abram, calling him out from his pagan family in his pagan land and saying, You are now mine and I'm going to build a nation out of you. I'm going to build a people And through these people, through this nation, through this house, this kingdom I'm establishing in you, all people will be blessed. And eventually, through that same line, the serpent crusher that God promised in the beginning would come to redeem us all. And God, in His mercy, to a people entirely deserving of judgment and wrath, stepped in and intervened by His grace, not in any way earned or deserved by us. In His grace, while we were still sinners, He sent His only begotten Son, God in the flesh, to bear our sin to the cross to take the wages we earned and exchange that for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is the story of redemption that is being played out even today as God has now established for himself a new people. Having established Israel to to give the word and to be the line through which Christ would come, the Messiah would come, Messiah has now come and has established for himself a new people in the church that includes believing Israel, so that his will might be done and we who are far from him might be brought near, so that it is available to anyone who will receive it. That's the good news. The good news stands on the bad news that all in ourselves are condemned, but all in Christ have grace made available if only we will receive it. You've been given a gift if you'll open the package and take hold of it. That's the faith. Believing that God is telling the truth. And if we believe it, and if we receive it, then it changes us. It gives us a new life. No longer are we children of wrath, but we become children of God. Not by any of our works, not by any acts of righteousness on our part, but according to His mercy, His grace, only by believing, not by working, So that there's no room for boasting. And yet, he's not done. He created perfection. We messed it up. He's bringing us back. He's done all that can be done. All that can ever be needed to pay for our rebellion. So that we can receive it by faith. But understand, in the end, when God finally says it's time to settle accounts. There will be a reckoning. A consummation of history resulting in the restoration of the perfection with which he originally created the new heavens and new earth. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will live in his presence no longer separated from the giver of life. Reigning as royalty in the new heavens and new earth. Now, when we understand that big picture of what's going on, we see that as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, there is a very specific context. And he is keenly aware and making them aware that as the church, we have a very specific context and prominent role in the story of humanity. So let's look at the story of Ephesus. As the world continued to become more and more sinful, as the world continued to become more and more sinful, we we see the, the debauchery and the wickedness that led to Noah's flood. Incidentally, that's where the rainbow comes from. As God ordered molecules to align in such a way as to create a prismatic effect in the sky, dividing the bands of light so that we could see these colors that remind us every time we see one that God's judgment and wrath is deserved and yet He has promised not to utterly destroy the earth with the flood again. That's God's grace. As we see this unfold, and the the world continues to march toward that consummation, toward that restoration, we find ourselves, as they did in Ephesus, in this period of redemption, when God's grace is offered. In Ephesus, there are three things you need to know. Three Ps, if you will, in the story of Ephesus. They are prosperous. They are pagan, and they are perverse. They are prosperous, they are pagan, and they are perverse. This city of Ephesus was a a very prominent trade city, and so there's a lot of wealth. And one of the great ancient wonders is there in the temple of Artemis or Diana. And as we see this temple, this great architectural wonder Which also is the center of worship. They're not worshiping the living God, but a false God, and specifically in promiscuity. Part part of the worship is the debauchery of temple prostitution. So it's normal in this city not only to have wealth, but to pursue godless pleasure as if it were worship. They are prosperous, they are pagan, and they are perverse. So as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area, understand that he's not writing to them in some nice Christianized culture. This isn't, you know, the, the... The the picture of the Holy Roman Empire, which, by the way, wasn't that Christian either. This This is a very dark place, spiritually. And the church stands in the midst of this as he writes this letter. Yet, unlike my ramblings at the beginning of this sermon, Paul doesn't sound like he's despairing at all. He has very important things to say and very pointed things to say, but this entire letter is filled with hope. It's filled with joy. It's filled with wholeness and peace, specifically with the shalom that those Coming from the Jewish part of Ephesus in the synagogue, would recognize a harmony with God, a harmony of being, so that the identity and the action line up and reflect the reality of God in such a way as to bring out all manner of prosperity, spiritually, temporally, good things taking place because of that harmony with God. It's very much the picture of Genesis 2.25. You can look it up for yourselves later. But in Genesis 2.25, we're told that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were both naked and unashamed. That's the picture of shalom. There is nothing to be ashamed of. No disharmony. No disunity. Nothing dividing them from one another. Nothing dividing them from God. God. And in the restoration of that perfected state, the restoration of innocence, that wholeness, that reconciliation, is central to everything that Paul is saying in the letter to the Ephesians. Over and over again, in light of our position in Christ, he comes back to the concept of unity, of wholeness, of oneness. Bear those things in mind as we look at this chapter. So in the story of humanity, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation or restoration, we see that the story of Ephesus lands after the fall in this process of redemption. And their prosperity, paganism, and perversity leads us directly into the story of us it's not hard for us to recognize that we're not a whole lot different than Ephesus. When we look back, understanding that that Paul did not write this letter to real-life community church in Three Oaks in 2021. He wrote it to these people in the Middle East with this Mediterranean culture in what we would recognize as Turkey now, in the first century and yet are we any less prosperous, pagan or perverse than they so what do we do how can we walk rightly in this foulness we need to understand what Paul is saying here earlier we read most of this chapter to give us context so let's back up to the, beginning of, <clears throat> excuse me, to the beginning of the book of Ephesians to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. This is part of the grand historic, uh, historical telling of, of this story. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking now to the church, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Your translation, your rendering there may say objects of wrath or children of wrath. I think children of wrath seems to be the best rendering they're all valid but it seems to parallel what Paul is saying in the rest of the letter we were by nature deserving of wrath but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Jump to verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's using the term with a, a something of an irony here as he's referring to the heathens, the pagans, the unbelievers having just said there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. I think this is an unfortunate rendering. I think the, the better take looking at uh, other texts and other translations is that they were, are greedy for more, continually hungry, wanting to indulge their sensuality more and more. He'll speak specifically of greed later. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self. That's who you used to be. Dump that, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. New mind, new self in Christ, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then we come to today's text. As I mentioned to you in previous weeks, I think the, uh, the chapter ought to break there. This should be a new paragraph and a new chapter, but nobody asked me. So, Verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the foundation, the platform. The springboard from which Paul launches into the details that are about to come. Everything that he's saying here is he is saying to those who are in Christ. It's a key theme of the book of Ephesians. All of us have fallen in Adam, but in Christ we are made new. We are no longer dead in our sins, but reborn, made alive by his mercy, by his grace. Contrary to what we deserve. That's the nature of grace and mercy. And the only thing that connects us with Christ is our accepting by faith, our trusting that God is doing and has done what he says. That Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. God in the flesh, here to seek and to save the lost, not by giving us some fine pattern to follow by our great willpower, but as an atoning sacrifice, a substitute for us. My wretchedness replaced with His righteousness. This is the cosmic trade that makes life possible for us. Now because of that trade, we who are in Him, who have been chosen and adopted who have been destined, our future secured in that he will finish what he started in us. So that we will ultimately, cannot fail, will ultimately be made exactly like Christ in the final analysis. Right now, we have been declared righteous in Christ. When God looks on us, he sees Jesus but in the end, when he finishes this restoration and consummation, we will be made in practice, in practical experience, just like Christ in that righteousness. But we ain't there yet. Which is why he goes into what he says next. Be like God, follow his example, live a life of love or walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's, by the way, tying this back into that Old Testament picture. In the ugliness and horror of sin that required in the, in the early phases here of the redemptive story, this blood sacrifice, which was a picture of what would be fulfilled in Christ. It was never the sacrifice itself. It was never the sacrifice of animals that forgave sin. God forgave sin in His grace. But that was a depiction of what would be the ultimate reality as Christ paid my penalty in the perfect sacrifice. In the same way that he did that for us, we are to love one another. We are to live a life that is defined by that kind of sacrificial love. And then he goes into what's coming next. Walk in the way of love, just like Jesus, but. Now you might wonder, why would there be a but after that? How could there be anything that we're going to make, you know, well, this is a great thing, right? We're going to walk in the way of love. We're going to look like Jesus. That's great. Uh, But don't miss this. Paul is specifically addressing here the distortions of God's grace that we are so prone to So often, and again, I'm speaking to and about the church because the world is another entity. They're walking around in darkness and don't know the difference. And some of you today are still in that darkness. And I pray that even as I'm speaking, even as you are here gathered with God's people, that He would capture you and open your eyes. That you might be able to see the grace that He is offering to you so that you can no longer be in darkness but be in light for eternity. But the world out there isn't who he's talking to. He's talking to the body of Christ. And so often we are seeing today, and it's obviously not new because it's addressed so many times in scripture, specifically here, the distortion of God's grace that says God is love, right? So all bets are off, because God is love, 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 love. Love is love, right? It doesn't matter how you do it. It doesn't matter if you sin. There can't be a hell, because God is love. And a loving God would never do that. The only way that we can come to that conclusion is to isolate ourselves from the rest of the redemptive story that God has put in place. There is a reason that it is crucial when we study the scriptures not to take a verse or a chapter or even a book. We have to look at the whole story of what God is telling us. He is revealing himself in all of scripture. So if you have heard from someone in recent years or recent days to unhitch from the Old Testament, I want to encourage you to repent of that falsehood. Do not be deceived. Apart from the Old Testament, there can be no New Testament. We must understand the foundation before we build the house. And so Paul is saying here as you walk in the way of love, that's not tainted love. I should have named this sermon that, right? (laughs) Because those of you of a certain age recognize it. Tainted love is not something to be celebrated. The reality of this is that God has called us to holiness. And far too often, we who claim the name of Christ, who wear the jersey, don't live as if we're on the team. We have forgotten in this wash of the idea of unconditional love. Which I think is just a very unhelpful term. We forget that God has standards. That sin will always, must always be judged by a holy God for him to be a holy God. Let that sink in for just a moment. Because you've been told this so often that I'm not sure that it registers with all of us. So I'm going to say it again. Sin is always and must always be judged by a holy God in order for him to be a holy God. For God to be just, justice must be served. And evil must be punished. We recognize this in daily living. No judge who lets off a murderer is considered a good judge. The same is true for sin, for crimes against the Holy God. So everyone's sin will be punished. The hope, the good news, the gospel message is that for those who are in Christ, that sin has already been judged and punished in Him. All of God's wrath Against my sin has already fallen on Christ at the cross. There is no punishment left for those who are in Christ, only discipline to guide his children into holiness. His wrath is reserved for those who remain outside that sacrifice. All right, let me get refocused here. Paul is calling us away from tainted love, away from this distortion that says because God is love, we just throw away his holiness. Because God is love, justice doesn't matter. There can't be any judgment. A loving God wouldn't do such a thing and we distort his character, his image by trusting our own understanding rather than trusting God completely. Let's talk about the three things that we see here. First, we see that impurity distorts and destroys the way of love. Impurity distorts and destroys the way of love. Verse three, but among you, this is, remember, this is in light of, this is jumping off the springboard of walking in the way of love. He says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. It must not even be named among you, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed. Because these are improper for God's people, for God's holy people. Understand, God is holy, He is other, and therefore His people are to be holy as He is holy. We'll get to that a little bit later. Notice this, impurity. Impurity. What is it? What is impurity? Now we have an image in our minds, perhaps if you're looking at drinking water. right? If you have a, We have a, a filtered pitcher that we use to be able to put purified water into the coffee pot. right? If I were to go and dip water out of my cattle's drinking trough out there and dump that into the coffee pot, it ain't going to be good. Right? We're going to have to change that filter real quick. Why? Because there's a lot of impurity. Cows tend to slobber too, so there's, there's all that. I don't recommend drinking from it because it's impure. The same reason that you wouldn't go out to the, to the processing fields out here where the, the sewage goes and dip something out of there to drink. It's not pure. There are contaminants. We don't need to get into it. It's disgusting. Impurity is disgusting. What is it? One online dictionary gave gave a description that I thought was worth noting. It said it this way. Impurity is worthless or dangerous material that should be removed. Worthless or dangerous material that should be removed. Synonyms might include contaminant. So synonyms for an impurity. Contaminant or, I like, adulterant. That made me smile when I saw it. Adulterant was a word that I had not used before. So I'm going to see if I can say it at least one more time. Adulterant. That which adulterates. A contaminant. That which contaminates. You have something that is pure, that is clean, and then something bad gets into it. Keep that in your mind as we talk about impurities. Impurities. Impurity distorts and destroys the way of love. We can live a life that we might call love that's motivated by love, but apart from holiness, impurities defile that walk, that life. Notice this. He's giving us two specific commands here as he's talking about it. I'm boiling it down to two two specific commands. First, do not allow the way of love to be tainted by immorality. Do not allow the way of love to be tainted by immorality. When we allow this idea of love, 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 love to lead us into a place where sexual immorality takes place. Where we are not guarding our hearts against the adulterer or the adulteress when we are not keeping pure thoughts, if we allow all of the, what what we might refer to as social norms, and I think that's uh, not really our point, but I'm hoping that that phrase will help you understand it. When we take down the walls around the fortress of our hearts, and we allow any type of thing to come in, we are defiling, we are tainting the way of love with these impurities. God has given us marriage, sexuality, and family specifically for His purposes, to bring Him glory and to help us understand His relationship to His people. When we allow impurity to taint that, we are distorting the image of who God is. We are undermining the picture of His holiness. Do not allow the way of love to be tainted by immorality. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Anything that might taint the way of love. And then he goes on to say, do not allow the way of love to be corrupted by greed. Do not allow the way of love to be corrupted by greed. Not only should there not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, there shouldn't be Even a hint of greed among you. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Greed corrupts self-serving passions, corrupt the way of love. When the way of love becomes me taking advantage of you, we promote a loving mentality, and yet my selfishness creeps in and preys upon your love, And this has happened so many times throughout history that it's almost axiomatic, it's almost proverbial. You look at what happened in in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 and the love of Christ in the believers, the followers of Christ led them to lay down all sense of possession. Now it doesn't mean they didn't have possessions. It says that they didn't really care that it was mine or yours. I want to take care of your needs, right? So they took what they had and shared with others. In some cases, they even went beyond what was expected and sold their own stuff, houses, property, whatever it is, they sold it and then gave the money to the church so that the church could take care of the needs of others. This was a a fantastic thing And yet, we've seen throughout the millennia that have followed that many charlatans prey on that. And we come in and say, hey, if you'll just send your seed money to my ministry, God will bless you. This is corrupting the way of love. Let's let's all bring everything to the storehouse and I'll tell you how to handle it bring all of your goods here in this distortion of the way of love and I'll take all of yours and I'll redistribute it because my holiness and righteousness is better. My wisdom is better. Cults have been doing this for as long as there has been religion. That's not the way of love. That's greed corrupting it. God calls us to a life that reflects him, that reflects the reality of his character as demonstrated by Jesus himself. And when we allow impurity, immorality, greed to taint and corrupt that that loving lifestyle, then we no longer are reflecting him. We need to be very cautious about that. Impurity distorts and destroys the way of love. Next, notice this. What comes out reflects and affects what is inside. What comes out reflects and affects what is inside. Jesus pointed out that it's not what goes into a person. It's not what you eat that defiles you. Spiritually speaking, but what comes out of a person. He clarified this by saying, uh, and James echoes this in in James 3, that this, this well of our heart is the water source for the faucet of our face. Okay, maybe that's a crass way of saying it. What he's saying is the mouth speaks the overflow of the heart. What's in me comes out of me in the way I talk, in the way I communicate. But not only is it what comes out of my mouth, but the things that come out of my mouth also go into my ears. I bring myself down when I allow foulness to come out of me. It reflects what's inside, but it also affects what's inside now, just to clarify, let's talk about the difference between obscenity, profanity, and vulgarity. We don't really discuss these things very often, so y'all don't know how to cuss, right? I'm going to I'm gonna try to coach you up a little bit, try to help you, all right? So obscenity, at its root, has this meaning of all that is vile and offensive. It's kind of a comprehensive term. It tends to most often mean, or most specifically in its connotation, have to do with... Uh, with sexually immoral things and scatological things, bodily function type things, right? So that's the the general idea of obscenity is that which is offensive and vile. Profanity is more specific and is often included when we talk about obscenity. By the way, obscenity has a very specific legal definition uh, according to the Supreme Court. But as we're talking about profanity, it's not necessarily included in that. Obscenity is not governed by the First Amendment. You do not have the free speech to be able to be publicly obscene. That has been severely tested in recent decades. But you do have, according to the First Amendment, believe it or not, the right to be profane. Now profanity has to do with that which is religiously offensive. To make common or base that which is sacred. The original, the the Latin term has to do with outside the church. And so when we take the things of God and we debase them, that is profane. That is why it is inappropriate for us to speak the name of the Lord lightly. That's why G.D. was has historically been one of the the worst swear words that we could have in our English language. If you're of a particular generation, you you put that up there in the R-rated list, right? But if you're of a younger generation, you're probably a lot more used to hearing it. Because our standards in society change. They shift. Say amen if you know that God's standards don't shift. Now, what words constitute these things can vary from society to society and from age to age. But the concept that Paul is saying here, that we need to make sure that what comes out of our mouth fits who we are in Christ, always applies. So obscenity is a broad, offensive, vile sense. Profanity is specifically that which denigrates or debases the sacred. So words like damn and hell are Considered to be profane when we take lightly the judgment of God. God God alone can damn or can condemn. So when we just toss that around, we are profaning, debasing a sacred concept. When we toss the word hell around as if hell's not a really important concept, a very sacred thing for us to consider, then we are again denigrating making light of God's judgment. Specifically in the Ten Commandments and and elsewhere, when we talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, it has to do with taking lightly an oath that you swear before God. As God is my witness, I'm telling the truth. I swear to God, all these different things. When I just throw that around lightly, or I make a promise based on that swearing of God's name, like I put my hand on the Bible kind of thing, and I break that oath, that is a particularly profane thing. Vulgarity is a little bit different, vulgarity has to do, not, maybe not necessarily something that is officially considered a cuss or a swear, right? But those things that are inappropriate, ill-suited to the moment. like. Stuff that might not be a big deal for you to say normally, but you just don't say that around Grandma. Those kinds of things. You know. So uh, uh, one of the, as I was sorting these things out, one of the uh, quick, uh, quick fix way to judge it was obscenity will get you in trouble with the government. Profanity will get you in trouble with God or with the church. And vulgarity will get you in trouble with your mom. So if you're not sure which it is... There you go. What comes out affects what is inside. We have a, a movement today that says it doesn't really matter if a Christian cusses a little. It's no big deal. That's, that's not a big deal. I want to submit to you, read the Bible. Because he's saying it's a pretty big deal. It's right up there with all the sexual immorality and everything else. Don't let even a tiny part of this define who you are. Because you are defined by Christ. You have been made holy and pure in him. All the rest of this is defiling. It is impure. It does not reflect a life that has been changed. Verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. Notice these two things. First, do not allow your mouth to forget who you are. Do not allow your mouth to forget who you are. The things that come out of you reflect what's inside of you. And when your mouth talks like who you used to be, like a child of darkness, that should be very concerning to you. Now don't misunderstand, many of us are going to have things that slip out because we have vestiges of the old self there. Habits die hard, good or bad. So sometimes, if you have had those words, those thoughts in your heart and in your mind for however long, and you smash your hammer with a thumb, sometimes that barnyard word might come out, right? That's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about is when you're okay with that. I'm just, okay, it's whatever, it doesn't really matter. That which breaks the heart of God breaks the heart of God's child. So when I use things, use my mouth to say things that I ought not to say, not because it offends grandma, although that is an important thing as well, but because it denigrates the image of God. That needs to rip my heart. Oh, but it was just a little swear. Dude, how little is it when it makes God's image in you small and dirty? Do not allow your mouth to forget who you are. Second, do not allow your ears To poison your mind. Do not allow your ears to poison your mind. The entertainment choices that we make. Put these things in us. Right? If my mouth speaks. What is overflowing from the well of my heart. I need to be very careful. That my ears are not tapping into the the water. And putting poison into the well. If I'm taking in that which is vile, then I am loading up the well of my heart with that vileness. And the things that come out of my mouth just naturally flow from that. Of course, joking. There's a a line from a a movie, some of you may recall, a a movie with Steve Martin, where the kids soak the, the new guy's pants in meat. Y'all know, right? And the dog comes up after him. And Steve Martin says to his kids, that's wrong. Funny, but wrong. We do that a lot as parents, unfortunately. I will say I don't remember my mother ever laughing at any foulness that came out of me. Now, I can make her laugh with some naughtiness sometimes. <laughs> I do not notice. I got away with some stuff. Gabriel got away with some stuff. But that which breaks our heart, that which we find to be a mortifying thing, is not something we chuckle about. There is no, "Eh, it's funny, but wrong. Because the moment you say that, your child hears, it's funny, blah, 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 blah. Your heart hears the same thing. When I watch television programs or listen to music or hang around with people who are foul or make light of godly sexuality, my heart hears funny blah 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 blah. And it poisons the well of my mind. Do not allow your mouth to forget who you are, do not allow your ears to poison your mind. Last big thing we see here. Being set apart for God means standing apart from deception. Being set apart for God means standing apart from deception. The word holy or holiness has to do with being set apart. We've got lots of different ways that we define it in our minds. But the idea is to Be set apart for God. God is holy in that He stands apart. He is entirely other. He is not like creation. Creation derives itself from Him. He is separate. He is above. He is beyond. He is apart. And those who belong to Him are set apart for God. So when you're called to be holy, yes, you are called to be perfect. God knows that you are not perfect. This is why he sent his son. But you are called to be set apart for him. I died in Christ. And now any goodness that you see in me is Christ living in me. I died. And I only live in Christ. Therefore, if I belong to him, then my lifestyle belongs to him. If I am living in some relational arrangement that is outside of the purity of marriage, I need to recognize that I have to repent and give that to him. Period. It does not matter what the world tells me my identity is. Or what my feelings inside subjectively tell me my identity is. My identity is as clear as this. I belong to him or I don't. And if I belong to him in Christ, then he owns all of me. And it does not matter how I was born. Believe me when I tell you. I have a powerful propensity toward every perversity you can imagine. If there is a sin, the devil works really hard to make it attractive to my mind. And it doesn't matter because everything belongs to him. Everything surrendered to Christ. God is bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. Including my sexuality, my mouth, and all of my life. Being set apart for God means standing apart from deception. Holiness is about that. Notice in the remainder of our text, verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. If you are immoral, impure or greedy, that means you are worshipping other things than God. No such person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. There are many voices today in the world and in the church working to convince us that sin doesn't matter. There are people from all sorts of different doctrinal backgrounds saying this. With all sorts of different theologies ultimately coming down to the idea that you can live your way instead of God's way. Sometimes that manifests itself in legalism, moralism, behaviorism, that if I do well, if I do good, if I behave in the right way, if I'm religious enough, I can be made right with God. It is a lie. On the other swing of the pendulum, we see That because Christ has done everything, once saved, always saved, I can do anything I want. Everything is permissible. But Paul tells us that not everything is beneficial. Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And if you're a Christ follower, (laughs) if you claim to be a Christ follower, and you want that, and you're comfortable with the darkness and vomit that you came from, then maybe you're not actually reborn. Maybe you're just trying to clean up in some religious movement. But when we've died to ourselves and been reborn in Christ, our desires have changed. We still struggle, we still stumble, we still fall but I no longer want to be identified with that I'm no longer defined by it because the inner person now joyfully conforms with God's will I want him I want to do his will Christ is most precious to me therefore when I fail it grieves me how do I know I'm a Christian because I'm perfect And again I say, I know because the things that break God's heart break my heart. First and foremost in the person in the mirror. If I am more grieved by the sin of others than I am by my own, then I might be a moralist and not a Christ follower. Two points. Do not allow yourself to believe the devil's lies. Do not allow yourself to believe the devil's lies. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. The lie the devil gave us in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, it's okay. Go ahead and eat that fruit. You will not surely die. I know God said it, but, but really, come on. If He's a loving God, how could He do that to you? If God's really good, you would not surely die. Think about it. It makes sense. You know the devil's been using the same lies since the beginning. Not much has changed. We just keep falling for the same lines over and over again. Paul says don't be deceived. There are many people, many voices who will try to deceive you with empty words, vain words if you're reading a King James Version. Words that are hollow, that promise a lot and yet you inherit the wind. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the devil's lies. Second, do not allow yourself to associate with those who do. Do not allow yourself to associate with those who do. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. This is all of us before Christ. Don't live like who you were before you were in Christ. And in verse 7, don't be partners. Don't be partakers. Don't associate with them. I believe the message says something to the effect of don't even hang out with them. Right? Don't be around them. If you are near someone who is distorting the truth by telling you sin does not have consequences or God is okay with your lifestyle whatever that immorality is, if it's contrary to God's word and people around you are telling you, it's okay. God loves you just the way you are. Run as far and as fast as you can. Those people are poisoning you. Love speaks truth. Always. If it isn't true, it isn't love. Do not associate with them. Do not allow yourself to be dragged under. Let me wrap wrap this up real quick. Again, our core reality, a child of God cannot embrace a life of impurity. A child of God cannot embrace a life of impurity. Our memory verse for today, much shorter, my daughter will be happy. It's much shorter than the last several that we've had. 1 Peter 1.16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is a, a culmination of so many things that the Lord tells us. The entire Old Testament is crying out that very thing. Be holy because I am holy. And yet we see over and over again that we are not. The children of Israel were not. You and I, when we're honest with ourselves, we're not that. So in our flesh, we are dead. And prone to destruction. Children of wrath. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, we who are children of wrath can be made children of God by His grace. A gift that you can't earn. But it's yours if you're willing to receive it. If you receive that gift, then everything inside of you will forever cry, Be holy because I am holy. And you may find yourself having more guilt and more stress. Because now you realize what before you thought was just cool, whatever. And you thought, "My, well, I'm a pretty good person. And now the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart's door, convicting you to say, uh, no. What just came out of your mouth? What, what are you doing with your body? Why are you pretending to be married when you're not married? You are distorting the holiness of God and purity matters. May that which flows out of us in daily living reflect the purity of the living water within us, that our Father may be duly honored and that our world may be rightly one to Him. May He change our hearts to give us clean hands and a pure heart, reflecting His character let's pray father in heaven we we thank you for the good news that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone for your glory alone plant it deep in our hearts father That if we are yours, that we cannot embrace a life of impurity. We still may have impurity. We will have impurity. And yet, by your spirit, by your grace, we can choose a life that pleases you. We can't earn your favor, but because we have been given your favor, We choose to filter out impurity. Father, cause us to walk worthy of the calling we've received. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.